Imagine that one in five people in your life had a condition that decreased their life expectancy by 20 years. What would you do? That question is playing out across Oregon, where 18% of children live with four or more adverse childhood experiences, like domestic violence, mental health illness in the family, loss of a parent. And because of that, they're more likely to suffer from chronic conditions and illness when they become adults. This episode of The Next Big Thing in Health is brought to you by Accenture, helping health insurers transform with intelligent automation. What does it mean to be an intelligent payer? To find out how your organization can apply artificial intelligence to achieve meaningful change, visit Accenture.com backslash AHIP and follow hashtag intelligent payer on Twitter and LinkedIn. Also, be sure to visit Accenture.com backslash AHIP to download the free Intelligent Payer Survival Guide. In today's episode of The Next Big Thing in Health, we talked to Dr. Imelda DeConis, Northwest Permanente's CEO and president, about the need to intervene early in a child's life to improve their health as they age. She also shares how Kaiser Permanente's integrated model with collaboration and alignment benefits hospitals, health insurance providers, doctors, and patients. We are so thrilled to have you here in Washington, D.C. Well, thank you for having me. What a great opportunity to uh, spend time with you and talk about so much that's going on in health. Yeah, and there is so much going on, and it's just kind of this amoeba that people are trying to pay attention to. Where where are the trends right now? I want to give a little more background about you um, and how you got to where you are. Dr. DeConis joined Northwest Permanente in 1999 as a primary care physician in internal medicine, quickly worked her way up. She ultimately became chief of staff and chief medical officer of the Kaiser Permanente Westside Medical Center in Hillsboro, Oregon. And in 2014, Dr. DeConis transitioned into regional leadership as Northwest Permanente's regional chief medical officer and director of hospital operations. And then in 2015, she was named CEO and president, the second woman to hold this position since the organization was founded in 1942. That's an accomplishment. Wow, I'm already tired just hearing <laughs> what you said about what I've gone through, but thank you for that. Well, what t- let's start by just telling me your, your background in healthcare. What, what led to this passion that you have for healthcare? Well, when I came out of University of Chicago from my residency and was looking for opportunities to practice, I really stumbled uh, upon Northwest Permanente because one of my senior residents uh, invited me and said, you have to check this place out. And that's how I came to discover Permanente. Um, And it's unique because Kaiser Permanente, as many may not know, is really composed of nine companies, nine entities. Kaiser Permanente is the name of our integrated care delivery system, but it's composed of Kaiser Foundation hospitals and health plans, so that's one. And then there are eight Permanente medical groups throughout the country in the regions we serve, including D.C. And so with the Permanente medical groups, as you mentioned, we are a self-governed autonomous medical group, and it allows me as a physician to practice medicine, what some of my cohorts say, ethical medicine, but the same reason that I came into medical school was to practice evidence in form for my patients. And that's what Permanente Medicine allows me to do because I am unencumbered. You know, I don't have to call somebody if I'm ordering a medicine for you or an imaging or a test for you to get authorization. In the moment, I can do all that 
because all the guidelines for prescribing and ordering and treatment, we the physicians create. And then we have a great partner in Kaiser Foundation Health Plan and Hospitals because they support all that. And we, as we create the guidelines, we really practice empowered medicine in that way, supported by our health plan colleagues. So it's more efficient. It's more efficient. You know, we um, are known for doing very well in population medicine as well as in personalized care. For all that reason, you know, we use the word integration a lot. Mm -hmm. And in KP, there are two levels of integration. One is that you have your care and coverage under one roof, that's integrated. And then uh, looking at the physicians, it's one medical group. So in every region, it's one medical group of primary care physicians, specialists, all connected with one electronic health record. So in the moment, I can see, if I'm seeing you for the very first time even, every test, every medicine, every physician, clinician you've ever seen in the system. So, so, so that's what another kind of, level of integration. Yeah, and, and what kind of impact does that integration have on the patient? Wow, uh, in many ways, the patient can feel assured that the decisions about his or her care are truly made by the physician with his or her best interests at heart, meaning that you're not wondering, am I ordering this test for you because I'm in a fee-for-service or volume-based system where I'm incented on my productivity, for example. It's also reassuring that in the moment, I have everything about you in the record in front of me. So for example, if you've had a CT scan in the last two years and you come in with a recurring problem, because I know your history right in front of me, I don't have to order another CT scan, which is you know, by itself equivalent of 32 chest x-rays. So the radiation level. So you know, getting down to the minutia, I know what medications you're taking. So in the moment, I don't have to worry about drug-to-drug -drug interactions. And so when we do telemedicine, for example, that's the power of the integration. I'm, you're not just calling me out of the blue and I'm listening to you and I'm treating you without all that context about you. So that's, I think that's very mm -hmm. powerful and that differentiates how our telehealth and telemedicine functions. Oh, absolutely. And yeah. so what about the doctors, the hospitals? How, what's the impact on them? How does this integrated medicine um, model affect them? Yeah, again, as a physician, I, I really feel empowered to make decisions for my patients based on the evidence. And that's really freeing. Um, from the hospital and insurer side, the fact that we are knitted together by the same mission, the alignment in our values, the fact that we exist to provide high quality, affordable healthcare services, the fact that we're always moving towards that as our North Star. I mean, think about it. You know, when the insurer, when the hospital system, when the physicians are all united in that, it makes creating guidelines, it makes creating patient care pathways, workflows, that much more comprehensive and I think easier in many ways because again, we are all rowing the, the same way and in the same direction on behalf of the patient and the member. Let me ask you how this also affects um, health insurance providers. Because I know that's you know that's a um, obviously a big piece of this. Um, so is there is that does it make it different for them? Or much more efficient, easier? 
I would say so. So an, an example would that be if I'm an insurance provider, there's a lot of conversations around the country about how do we create a compact with the physicians so that we're all aligned on the qualities and the quality metrics we should be working for and the care experience. In KP, Kaiser, the health plan, because of our compact, we've had a compact now for generations, the fact that, again, we're working towards the same mission, there isn't that what do we do to align with the physicians. We are already aligned. So in terms of the products that you create, so if you're going out in the market with a telehealth product, for example, you know that the physicians are going to come along with you together and work out the most efficient, cost-effective way to provide that. So as an example, in the Northwest, part of the program is telehealth and you have ability to do a video visit with your physician or a phone visit without a copay. Now that's a product that we chose together working out that we would provide to our members, for example. So there wasn't a crucial conversation or a hard conversation with the insurer telling the physicians for adoption of telemedicine. Again, as, as an autonomous medical group, we actually ideate, innovate, all these things that we want to do for our patients and with our patients, and then again, uh, health plan comes and supports that. Mm. And the insurance providers seem to, to like this system, the integrated system. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I mean, <coughs> again, a lot of what I see when I go out to, to other parts of the country, like I'm here today in DC, I hear a lot about insurance plans and hospital systems, again, struggling or trying to create ways to partner with physician groups and be on the same page on the quality metrics and such. And again, as an integrated system, that's pretty much a given with KNP together on our uh, mission, on our values and their products. So you come out with a product that aligns with the care models and the care paths that the physicians are creating. Okay. Let, let me take a, a back step here. I want to talk about Oregon and um, some of the things that are going on health-wise there. With um, you, you, you talk about how nearly 20%, it's 18% of children, go through at least four adverse childhood experiences, um, including domestic violence, mental health illness, and the family loss of a parent, for example. Um, you say that that sets them up for other issues. It's toxic. It's stress. And and including making them four times more likely to suffer from depression at some point in their life. And there are other problems that come out of that. Cancer, I, I saw that you mentioned that. Cancer, heart conditions, um, lung problems. I would assume this is all you know, attributable to, to the stress of those experiences. How can interventions, I know this is a passion of yours, um, made during childhood help prevent some of those chronic healthcare issues that I just mentioned? So uh, thank you for bringing up the ACEs or Adverse Childhood Experiences. You know, we, we've known for some time, as you said, that how many of those experiences you accumulate contributes to the likelihood of chronic medical illness as well as to the burden. So we have programs that in fact show when you invest upfront and one program is where mom is supported even before she delivers, for example, and the investment in ensuring that she has prenatal care, that she has education, and even education upfront on parenting, 
programs like that show that there can be as much as 10 to 1 return on investment. So every dollar you invest, you get $10 back in terms of preventing chronic illness later on, and even early childhood development issues, for example. Um, so there is data out there that these programs intervening even before the child is born uh, is, is very powerful. Um, and then within the family unit, you know, things that we can do in terms of housing. We have patients where, you know, I can tell you a story, and let's call her Julie, who is type 1 diabetic, and she's a teen. She lives in a home where it's, the floors are rotting, her mom works up, you know, two jobs, and how can she even focus on taking her insulin, right? So her insulin dosing goes out the wayside. She's just focusing on just surviving, frankly, in this family unit. And once we started wrapping services around her, connecting her to community resources so they get better housing, they get the financial help, all of that, you know, within, and you know, in her case, about 25 months, I want to say she had 30, 35 ED visits. Mm -hmm. She was hospitalized twice. She tried to commit suicide twice. Mm -hmm. And just wrapping around the services, really connecting community resources as well as the medical help, 40 plus social worker touches in four months. And I can happily report now that she's doing well in school. In fact, she graduated from high school and is going to college mm. and working part-time so that's you know, incredible yes yeah, so that's these really are incredible the kind of things and stories after stories when you wrap the services around the patient beyond what we do in clinic beyond what we do in the hospital you know social work community health workers at home there are many agencies in the in the communities we don't even or even barely tap in terms of connecting them to the patient connecting them to the patient's family and so these are the this is the power yeah. of understanding really the social determinants well of is this something that Kaiser Permanente is really um, on top of more so than any other uh, health care provider um, I can't speak to what the other yeah. providers are doing but certainly KP we we pride ourselves on prevention but when you look at adverse childhood experiences this is the ultimate right, the penultimate prevention. When you work up that stream, so pre you prevent the chronic illnesses when they're adults. So, so yes, we're committed to funding and helping community health uh, in housing and food insecurity. One of the more amazing things that we're doing right now is called 3 to PhD. And the name really comes from three trimesters, so beginning in the womb, to, the, to PhD, which is uh, higher education. So imagine this place in Northeast Portland, the poorest, one of the poorest uh, areas in Northeast Portland, and the system right across this elementary school is Concordia University. And what we've done with the three PhD program is with the collaboration between the community, Concordia University, um, we've placed a KP Dental, so we have dental providers on site of the school. We have medical provider on, on site. There is also uh, another company that contributes food, so the kids go home with groceries or food over the weekend for themselves as for their family because these kids 
without the school meals, don't really eat otherwise. And again, also on site, they get students from Concordia University who are future teachers, future physical therapists, you name it, they have their classes integrated with the elementary school. So the kids, you begin to normalize higher education. You know, it's not just some dream or myth or something foreign to them, you, it, it's just right there. So college students with the elementary kids are all there together and there's, again, addressing the food insecurity, addressing medical and you, and you say that the mindset really has to shift. Is, is it shifting toward what you're talking about? Is it shifting about talk to, to um, really examining the whole patient as a, as a whole from what's happening in the home to the cough that they present when they go to see the doctor? Well, certainly within KP, and uh, I believe there is more awareness now about adverse childhood experiences, about the social determinants of health, and the fact that you know less than 20% of health outcomes come from what I do inside the clinic or the hospitals. You know, the vast majority, over 80%, really come from socioeconomic factors, from behavioral health, um, genetics, certainly the environment. So with knowledge comes how do we reformulate our strategies to really do prevention, you know, when it's very, very early. Uh, out of our Center for Health Research in KP, for example, moms uh, where we looked at intervening in terms of their lifestyle and diet had better outcomes in terms of the birth weight of their children in terms of propensity for di you know, developing diabetes in the child as well as in the mom so so there's there's a lot of data out there that intervening early in utero even as early as that yeah. really uh, impacts the well-being of of the person. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. Um, tell me a little bit about what you're doing to develop this complexity, health complexity score. And um, you're, you're, it's based on the composite of medical complexity plus social complexity. I'm going to, it's very complex. <laughs> I'm going to let you describe that. And what does that mean for, for patients? What, what does it mean first? And then what, how does it impact patients? So if I'm seeing you in, in clinic and I get your medical history, so, so the medical complexity score comes from that, right? In terms of what are all the diagnoses I have about you. The social complexity score comes in when we take in total what's happening to you outside in the community. Mm. You know, what is the state of your family? Uh, is there domestic violence? Is there mental health issues in the family? And pretty much getting at the adverse childhood experiences that you mentioned earlier. So take that as the social complexity score then. And this is really a collaboration in Oregon between KP and the Department of Human Services and Oregon Health Authority about pooling those agencies and the data about mom, dad, and the child and putting that as the social complexity. And then together, what we're trying, what we're building is really the complete picture about the child in terms then of the complexity of the health okay. because we believe that once we know that depending on the risk depending on the complexity we can tailor intervention we can tailor intense you know intensity of intervention because this shouldn't be a peanut butter spread yeah of not resources. one size fits all correct yeah. and and frankly as a society we can't afford that mm -hmm. right so really knowing the complexity and then risk stratifying 
and tailoring the intensity and the the resources to that. So is that something that you're doing, giving this score to all patients? So we're doing it, we've done it now in in two clinics. So this is part of, again, uh, the work with OHA and DHS and looking at our EHR and configuring our EHR to do that, as well as those systems, you know, this, when I talked about mindset, the other thing that this begs is interoperability, Mm -hmm. right? Because it's been very challenging to, as you can imagine, those systems to communicate with our system. But, but we're overcoming that and, and eventually scale it up and spread it to, to all our uh, pediatric population and medical office buildings. Oh, that's wonderful. Um, and then predictive analytics, too. It's Correct. predicting what the outcome will be for each of these patients. Is, is that tied to the complexity score, or yes. is that something separate? Yes, okay. because once you know the complexity, the health complexity score, right, and you tailor, so you re-stratify, you tailor the interventions and the intensity of interventions, the hypothesis, the goal is that those children will be better off in terms of, you know, just the story I I told you earlier, you know, these are the kind of outcomes that we would be tracking Mm -hmm. in terms of as the life cycle of the child, how are they as teenagers, how are they as adults? And within our uh, KP system, assuming the child and the parents stay with us, we actually can then track that that longevity. Mm. Um, I want to take a look at one of the biggest crises in our country right now, which is the opioid crisis, um, the opioid epidemic. What what innovative um, approaches should healthcare providers be taking right now to tackle this problem, in your opinion? Well, it's twofold. There's the treatment intervention arm of the opioid crisis, right? So if for the people who are already addicted and have dependents, providing the mental health resources and help for that. The other is prevention. If you, as a child, never is prescribed opiate, the likelihood of you becoming that teenager that then becomes the adult with opioid dependence is less. So, so if we talk about prevention, one of the things that uh, inspired us was in 2012, FDA came out with a black box warning about codeine, and we had. Uh, Dr. Gross, Anna Gross, who was then the head and neck uh, surgery chief, really took that on and inspired the department to say, you know, for our kids less than seven and certainly higher risk, let's reduce opiate prescribing. Let's do that. And, you know, I, I would love to say anytime you do some sort of change management, you just say, oh, sure, let's do that. But it was really convincing the team and say, let's do a pilot and see, because anytime a physician is resistant to something, it's usually because he or she is fearful it's going to do harm. So so with that, a pilot was done, and pretty much in 18 months, with the fact that we didn't see any adverse outcomes from not prescribing codeine for these kids, reduced opiate prescribing from over 80% to 15, and then as of 2017, now 9% or less. So it started there, and with, you know, if you ever meet Dr. Gross, you know, she, she typifies grit. Mm-hmm. And uh, with her passion, she was able to work with every head and neck surgery chief in Permanente Nation 
and with their help and with all the care team's engagement, we now have spread it, uh, the work of opiate prescribing reduction among our PEDS uh, population in all the eight regions and prominent mm. medical groups. That's wonderful. Yeah. Are you seeing an impact as a result of this? Can well, you tell us about it? Yes. So, you know, when you look at across the eight regions, we have dropped opiate prescribing in children over 40%, in our region over 50%. So if you have a procedure and for the pain, I give you ibuprofen and or Tylenol and you're fine. Mm -hmm. I mean, so that's one less kid who's ever exposed. Yeah. You know, when you think about the 12 plus million KP members across our regions, it's about 20% mm. There's pediatric population. So, so that's a lot of kids that, yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm really excited for that. That's great. Anything else coming down the pipeline on that matter or on the health complexity score that uh, you want to share today? Yeah, so the PEDS opiate, you know, it's it started with the tonsillectomy, but that's really had a halo effect. So pretty much in, in general PEDS as well as surgical PEDS, um, that's spread in terms of everything we do. We also have in, in opiates, you know, um, along our adult population, when I talked about intervention earlier for that arm, we moved since we've been on this journey, I want to say 2008, we reduced the average morphine equivalent in milligrams that a patient with chronic pain takes from over 97 milligrams to more than half that now. I mean, wow. we're down in the 40s. That is incredible. Yes. yes. Has that been done before? Do you know? Um, well, yes, in the Northwest. So, well, uh, no, I know, but before you, you're, you're leading the charge on that. Well, it started before me, but really, um, you know, the fact that our Northwest Permanente physicians, clinicians, along with Kaiser Foundation Health Plan support, it, it's we have a governance in, in drug prescribing that is physician-led, pharmacy-supported, that's what we call it. And it, it really takes a village yeah. to do that in order to support our patients um, to do it. And, and how does it work within the uh, KP community around the around the country? Is is it you know one one group will introduce a, a program and it, you see it works and then it kind of makes its way across the country? Is that what's happening right now? Yeah. Um, so the 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 magic of, of Permanente Medicine and, and Permanente Nation is that there are so many innovative minds that there are pockets where where every day, you know, care models are being innovated, iterated, and and we come together so other presidents of Permanente Medical Groups and I get together uh, at the Permanente Federation. And through that, we triage and we discover and make decisions on what are the important things that we need to work together on to scale and spread. Mm -hmm. So that's that's how we do it in terms of scale and spread, okay. uh, best practices, and um, you know, uh, that's the beauty of the collaboration through the Permanente Federation. And then like I said, you know, none of this is possible if we didn't have a uh, Kaiser Foundation Health Plan in hospitals that are there with us, supportive, uh, to help enable uh, the the work and the innovation to go forward. Well, a lot has changed, I'm sure, since you started in the healthcare industry from the very beginning. <laughs> and uh, there's a lot more to come. It's an exciting time yes. in healthcare. Yes, it is. Yeah. Be
Best of times, best of times. That's good. Yeah. That's good to hear. All right. Well, Dr. Imelda Deconis, thank you so much for being thank with you. us. We really appreciate your insight and uh, all the information you shared today. Well, thank you so much for having me. Quick reminder that this episode of The Next Big Thing in Health is brought to you by Accenture, helping health insurers transform with intelligent automation. Did you know that artificial intelligence solutions can unlock billions of dollars in value for payers? To learn which six capability areas can generate the most value from AI, visit Accenture.com backslash AHIP to see the latest research from Accenture and to download the free Intelligent Payer Survival Guide. So Matt, Dr. Deconis spoke about how Northwest Permanente's integrated model impacts doctors, hospitals, and health plans, aligning them all and setting high quality, affordable care as their North Star. So I know you've worked in a variety of roles in healthcare industry and have a deep understanding of um, the broader trends in the healthcare industry. So in your opinion, number one, do you agree with this trend toward greater in- integration? Integration um, and the downstream impact on care coordination is incredibly important, and I see it as a a trend of the future. Um, People are investing in different ways of delivering care, different capabilities. We want to think about people really as the whole person, right? What are their physical needs? What are their mental behavioral health needs? What are their pharmacy needs? We shouldn't be segregating these out into different silos. We really want to think about this as a as a a whole person and what's going to lead to the best outcome. Mm -hmm. It also provides us some insight into the total cost of care, right? And what's really driving healthcare costs? Is it something that's happening with respect to a behavioral health issue or a mental health issue? Is it really a chronic condition? Is it pharmacy? Um, How can we make sure that we are delivering the highest quality, most cost-effective care? And the only way to do that is to really think about the whole person and how you integrate it. So taking it one step beyond that, how can integration spur innovation and, as you said, you know, create this more efficient and effective healthcare system? Right. I, I think it happens in many different capacities. It can happen through technology. Uh, right, and being able to, for example, take an electronic health record, make it interoperable with all the other parts of the system so that at any point in time, you can know exactly what that individual's healthcare history was, what have they been treated for, what tests have they had, what drugs have they been taking, um, and making sure that we can have the right intervention at the right time, whether it's a, a new technology to offer telehealth um, or some other innovative service that this individual needs. Um, by leveraging um, these kinds of new technologies, I think we're going to see greater integration, um, better outcomes, um, and better quality. And I know insurance providers are investing in new business partnerships and new technologies. So can you talk a little bit about that process and then tell me how how is that helping to simplify healthcare overall? Right. And I think you hit on the key point, which is simplifying healthcare. We want to make the healthcare system simpler, easier to use for consumers and patients. Right now, it's incredibly complex. It's very fragmented. And this integration can really help. If you think about a mobile technology that will enable you at any point in time to know what care you've received, how much is it going to cost if I go to the pharmacy at the corner um, over there versus the corner around from my office. Um, How about if I get an MRI at one place versus another? Um, These kinds of, whether it's mobile apps, online tools, 
um, ways that the system is working in a more coordinated, collaborative way is really going to help drive improvements, both in terms of outcomes, but I think consumer and patient satisfaction because it's going to be an easier system for them to understand and to navigate. Mm -hmm. So switching gears now a bit, I want to talk a little bit about social determinants, something that um, Dr. DeConis talked a lot about. So social determinants of health, and we're seeing a shift in mindset, a larger focus on examining the whole patient, the patient as a whole. So she mentioned, Dr. DeConis mentioned that less than 20% of health outcomes are the result of what happens inside the clinic while 80% of health outcomes are the result of social and environmental factors. So number one, do you agree with that, Matt? And what steps are health insurance uh, providers taking to address the social determinants of health? I completely, uh, completely agree. There is a growing body of evidence that it's not just the care that you receive in a physician's office or in a hospital that's determining your health outcomes. That's obviously very, very important, especially for acute episodes. But really, what happens in your home, in your community, where you work, where you live, um, what opportunities you have, what your educational status is, all of these things um, have a much bigger impact on health over the long run. Think about an issue like diet and chronic disease Mm -hmm. and the growing incidence of diabetes, right? I mean, we know that there's a close connection between the diet that Americans have taken over the past 20 years or plus that's led to a higher incidence of diabetes. I mean, there are things that start on the front end that we don't see manifest from a health perspective until years later. But uh, if we can intervene early on and really think about these things holistically, uh, we can change the trajectory of healthcare costs and more importantly, for the, for the health outcomes of individual people. So my question is, what role has the adoption of the Affordable Care Act had on um, helping address this issue of social determinants? So I'd say it's helped at the margins, but it hasn't really been the primary driver of recognition around social determinants of health. It really precedes the Affordable Care Act, and I think a growing recognition about the connection between social, economic, um, where you live, uh, and different opportunities much more so than anything specifically within the Affordable Care Act. Um, We've certainly seen efforts after the Affordable Care Act that have recognized this. So whether it be regulatory actions uh, from CMS or uh, pieces of legislation like the Chronic Act um, that, that Congress passed, that's really been helping to spur, I think, more of the conversation and recognition around social determinants of health. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so I know you've talked, spoken a lot about um, innovation and Medicare Advantage plans. So are those types of plans taking steps to address the, this issue as well? Um, Medicare Advantage plans are. And I'd also uh, think it's important to focus on what's happening with Medicaid mm-hmm. uh, managed care organizations. When you think about the Medicaid population, it can be our most uh, medically vulnerable population, low income, many healthcare challenges, um, and really try and find ways to meet individuals where they are in terms of getting the best outcomes. So thinking about things like housing, transportation, nutrition, you know, other elements, the Medicaid health plan community is really invested in social determinants because mm-hmm. they know what happens if you don't have affordable, reliable housing it's going to lead to a bad health outcome and you're going to wind up in the emergency room um, and you're probably going to have many other downstream impacts. So the Medicaid health plan community, in addition to Medicare Advantage, are really at the forefront of some of these changes. Mm -hmm. So it's really thinking ahead and making an investment, more of an investment. It is an investment. um, And I think it's an investment in 
better care. It's an investment in lower costs. Um, it's an investment in really the whole person uh, and recognizing that we need to make sure that all of their needs are met uh, because if they're not, then we're going to have downstream implications for um, health outcomes and it's not going to be positive. Great insight. Thanks, Matt. This episode of The Next Big Thing in Health has been brought to you by Accenture, helping health insurers transform with intelligent automation. Visit Accenture.com backslash AHIP to download the free Intelligent Payer Survival Guide. To find out the top three business areas where payers can generate near-term value from artificial intelligence, visit Accenture.com backslash AHIP to see the latest research from Accenture. And be sure to follow hashtag Intelligent Payer on Twitter and LinkedIn. Big thanks today to Dr. Imelda Deconis, President and CEO of Northwest Permanente for joining us. And thanks as always to Matt Isles from AHIP for his perspective and insight. Remember to subscribe to The Next Big Thing in Health on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you liked what you heard, tell a friend and leave us a rating and a review. Thanks for tuning in.